Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Well, whether you are aware or not, you have survived until midterms, so good job doing that, y'all. I have, uh, I have an important theological question to launch us in tonight, okay? Do you think that Jesus had head lice? Do you think that Jesus had migraines? Do you think... Uh, that Jesus had morning breath, that Jesus, I, that Jesus had like stomach problems from stuff that he ate. Do you think that he avoided onions? Do you think that he was annoyed with dogs or cats? You ever thought about that? Depending on the kind of church that you grew up in, that might actually feel like, I don't know, weird, like borderline blasphemous for me to talk that way about Jesus. And I actually, instead of walking around that tonight, I need to walk right to the center of that. I actually need to go further than that. This question of a Jesus who endured a human experience. Uh, Whether or not you're familiar with it, Philippians 2 is one of the most beautiful, uh, deep, mysterious texts in Scripture. Theologians call it the canonic text. Uh, based on a specific Greek word that sits in there. But that's the, that's the passage of Scripture that talks about how Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, emptied himself, taking the form, like making himself in human likeness, taking the form of a servant, even enduring the cross on our behalf. And so the mystery that sits in there that Paul puts across there is that Jesus became human, truly that he entered into the human experience like you and I are a part of the human experience. And again, we like to talk about Jesus as if he like just kind of floated across the ground and he, you know, he was a human, but, but not really, right? Because he was also fully God, which we believe. So he was just exempted from all of this other random stuff like migraines and head lice and food preferences. And no, you guys, no, no, no. He endured he entered into the human experience the way that, that you and I did. We have, to, we have to take some of the glowiness off of Jesus to understand that he lived a fully human experience. If we're to truly take in Philippians 2 and understand it for what it is, that Jesus endured that way. The Hebrews author will actually take it a step further for us. He will say this, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So I'm just talking about goofy physical stuff. I mean, head lice is one thing, but the Hebrews author is talking about how Jesus was tempted. It it feels extra blasphemous maybe for me to talk about Jesus being tempted with sexual sin or Jesus being tempted to lie or cheat or steal or harm. But that's exactly what the Hebrews author says, that he was subjected to that human experience the same way that you and I are. Now, what's the difference? He didn't give into it. He didn't give into those things, but he did endure them. He entered into them. And when we don't want to talk about that, when we take that away from who Jesus is, we actually do a disservice to what scripture talks about Jesus enduring. 
what he walked through, who he is, because he becomes an example. He becomes someone who understands this. He becomes someone who sympathizes with you and your weakness, who truly can empathize with it because he endured the same kinds of temptations that you endured. Even the ones that you don't want to apply to Jesus, you're like, yeah, Jesus didn't get tempted with that. The Hebrews author says he did. In all of the ways that you endured temptation, that Jesus also endured temptation. And we have to take that in a little bit. He was tempted not just not just with these physical things, but he was tempted to despair. He was tempted with a deep anxiety. That this isn't just a physical thing that we're talking about, but even in the mental health world, the stuff that we struggle with, those are temptations for Jesus that he walked through in this life. Now, in the the Bible, if you know the larger story of the Bible, we have the very beginning, right? Where God creates this space for humans to be, the Garden of Eden. And it says that in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life. Remember that image, Genesis 2, if you want to look it up later. I don't have it on the screen. But this picture of perfection. What's crazy is, if you walk all the way through Scripture to Revelation 22, do you know what you see? It's a picture of heaven. The tree of life makes an appearance again. There's another garden. Sometimes they call it the Revelation Garden of Eden or the the Garden of Zion. There's another garden that sits, this, this sense that we are moving from garden to garden, that we are in between gardens in the space in between, all right? And tonight, it's weird the symmetry that Scripture has because we have the Garden of Eden, which is perfection in Genesis 2. We have this other garden that we are moving toward that's also perfection, that's Revelation 22. And there's another garden dead in the center of it. Gethsemane, which couldn't be more opposite of the other gardens. It's awful. This garden that sits in between is full of decay, difficulty, suffering. It is the opposite of Eden. And Jesus, I mean, we're in a series on turning points, right? And almost all of the scriptures that we've gone are are turning points with God. He's been offering invitations or we, you know, we talked about Paul, about God putting obstacles in Paul's path as turning points. This turning point is for Jesus. Gethsemane, what we'll talk about tonight, is a turning point for Christ. And maybe for us. Really, really beautiful section of scripture. So I have as a memory verse tonight to represent this garden that sits in the middle, perhaps the most discouraging memory verse I can give you. It comes out of John 16. Are you ready? Repeat after me. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus' words for you tonight. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says to you. It's actually a much more encouraging verse than that, but I need you to get to the center of that verse first before I give you what sits around it as a sandwich. Because sometimes in the Christian world, we talk in all these flowery phrases about like, you know, if you follow Jesus, that's the safest place that you can possibly be. Or we talk a lot about peace. We talk a lot about joy. I'll get there in a second. But it's like Jesus is looking us square in the eyes in John 16, and he's saying, actually, in this world, you will have trouble. If someone comes and preaches to you a different message than that, you need to give them Jesus's words and be like, you know what? Jesus actually said there would be trouble. What do we do with that? Friends, how do we endure suffering, trouble, difficulty? The, the Greek word in that passage, I'm, let me give you the whole verse here, okay, before I jump to that. These are Jesus's words. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. See the sandwich that sits around these words? In this world you will have trouble. 
but take heart. I have overcome the world. So what we see is Jesus saying, hey, you are not exempted from pain. You are not exempted. In between these two gardens, the world is a difficult place. It does have trouble. You will feel trouble. That Greek word, trouble, could be translated these ways. Affliction, oppression, tribulation, suffering, persecution. Jesus is saying that's the reality between these two gardens. You will feel it. I will feel it. That is the way it is. In this world, you will have trouble. But look at the beginning. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. We can find a peace that sits within the trouble, in other words, and take heart because I've overcome the world. There's another Eden coming where justice will make things right. But how in the world do we make sense of these things? Because I, you know, in my experience within the Christian world, we love to quote verses like Nehemiah 8.10. That's the one that says, Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Right? You heard that verse before? The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's a great verse to, like, put up in your kitchen or to put on a T-shirt. We're like, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Fits with, right with what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, where he said to be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But what happens, you guys, if we define joy as happiness? Like, oh, I feel really good today. I feel really good about my world today. If that's our definition of joy, suddenly we start doing really wonky things in the name of, of faith. We start to put masks on because we think that's the way we're supposed to behave. I'm actually supposed to be happy all the time. Even when crappy things happy, happen to me, I'm supposed to just put on a happy mask, and that's the, what I'm supposed to project to you. So, you know, the, you have the worst day ever, and somebody says, you know, your Christian friend says, hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Praise the Lord. A couple of, you know, rough challenges today, but I'm working my way through it. Things are good. I'm, I'm feeling joy. <laughs> you, like, muster up this thing in you that's the, that you have to be dishonest because you want to put a different face forward. You guys, what if I'm telling you that Jesus himself looked to you tonight square in the eyes and said, hey, friend, follower, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Those two things can coexist with one another. I wish someone would have laid this out for me earlier in my Christian faith. It took me a while to understand how these, t and I, I'm, I'm still on that journey, but how these two things coexist in our world. And it makes me very excited for our text. All right, Jesus, I would argue this is his, these are his darkest hours that we're going to look at tonight. In Luke 4, the, it says that Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and Jesus shot him down. I don't want to spend a lot of time in that passage. Jesus shoots down the, the enemy's temptations, um, and then it says that he left Jesus to come back at a more opportune time. And you guys, I think our text tonight is that more opportune time. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's really hours away from it, and he knows it. He knows it's going to happen. He's struggling with it. He has a meal with his disciples. He spends some time teaching them. This is his last chance to be with them. And then he goes to the Mount of Olives to pray, which we're told in Scripture is a place that he went often. This is a familiar place to him where he went and met and prayed with the Father. And here's our text tonight. So after all of this happens, as Jesus is getting ready the weekend that he's going to die, it says they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, this is to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray. 
So he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Pay attention to the words that Jesus is using here. Stay here. Keep watch with me. So he went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and praise that you'll not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. And when he returned to them the third time, he said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. My betrayer is here. Right after that, he will be arrested. Because uh, you know the story, Judas betrays him. Right after that, he will be whipped, he will be flogged, he'll be spit on, he'll be put on the cross, he'll be murdered. This moment for Jesus is not the physical pain that he will be suffering. This moment for Jesus is the mental and emotional anguish of what is about to happen. Did you notice the words that sat in there? I, I put them in my notes. Let me read them to you exactly the way they are. Verse 33, he's greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Verse 34, he fell to the ground as he prayed. Luke 24 actually adds a detail in there. Luke is a doctor, and he, as he writes his gospel, he specifically talks about how Jesus' sweat was becoming like blood as he prayed. That's a, it's a physical condition where anxiety causes the capillaries in your skin to start to burst and blood starts to mix with your sweat. I need you to understand the level of angst. There are different Greek words, by the way, that deal with depression, that deal with angst. And that one where it says he was greatly distressed and troubled is the deepest word they had for depression in that space. This is a dark night of the soul moment for Jesus. This isn't a pretty piece of scripture. This is a struggle. Do you hear him begging the father, if it's possible, I don't even want to do this. I don't want this cup. Let someone else drink it. Take it from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Sorry, it's not a funny sermon I got for you tonight, but it's an important one for you. Because I think you can relate. I know you're not going to the cross for other people's sins, all right? But you have your own dark night of the soul. All of us have experienced suffering in some way or another in this room. I know you have. Some of you have experienced more than me. Some of you have experienced less than me. It doesn't matter. It's not a game of comparison. There is the space where there is emotional, physical, mental suffering that sits between these two gardens. And just like Jesus experienced it and said you would experience it, we do. We do. And he is the one who helps to speak wisdom into this. Now, the one thing that Jesus had as an extra burden that you and I don't have is he could have bypassed all of this at any moment. 
You guys, if I had a free pass, if I had a, a get-out-of-suffering-free card in my back pocket, it would be played about every six minutes, all right? Just constantly, constantly playing that thing. Jesus, if you'll remember when he was being arrested just a little bit after this, and Peter tries to take action, he says, Peter, don't you realize that if I wanted to right now, I could call down legions of angel armies? In other words, if I wanted to wipe the earth clean right now of humanity, I could do it. I'm not doing that. That isn't the way forward. I'm submitting to this, Peter. So he reminds us even in that moment that even though he has a get-out-of-jail-free card in his deity, he doesn't play it. He doesn't use it because he knows what his purpose on this planet is. It's to endure it on our behalf. Now, I can relate to this passage in a different way, too, because when I am in pain, I mean, these are just some things I threw on the screen today as I was processing what it feels like when I'm in pain, because I see them in this text, all right? One of them is the pain goes to my core. If you're ever in a really deep moment of, of anguish, where, you know, I, I have been giving, given medical diagnoses from a doctor that are really hard to hear for me, and I have, been, I have been given those for people that I love dearly. And it doesn't just feel like physical pain. It feels like a different weight in your core, like it goes to your soul. And I saw that in verse 34, Jesus saying, my soul is sorrowful even to death. I feel that in my pain. When, when I'm in pain, I keep praying the same prayers over and over. All I can think of is that thing. You know, again, you get bad news about someone who's very close to you. That's all you can think about. It's all that's going through your brain. And I find myself praying very, very repetitive prayers. This is what Jesus was doing. He prayed the same words, verse 39, over and over again in his moment of suffering. The clock slows down. You guys, time flies when you're having fun. But, but when you are in a season of suffering, it seems like the minutes crawl. And all you want them to do is pass more quickly. It says that here. He prayed that the hour might pass from him. And lastly, I threw on here that, that it feels like you're completely alone. Doesn't pain have a way of doing that to us? Feels like I'm isolated, that, that, that other people just can't understand, they can't relate. You guys, Jesus is in a moment where, where he's asking the disciples to keep watch with him, to pray with him, to be with him, and they just keep falling asleep. This is not Peter's brightest moment in the hours here and the hours that follow. And so it is amazing to think about a Savior that would be willing to endure all of that as you and I endure all of that. But let me ask you some questions here, okay? Because pain brings about some of the hardest theological questions I think that we can ask. For example, if God is good, then why is pain even allowed to exist in this world? How could a good God watch evil things happen and not intervene? It's a hard question. What do we do when we experience suffering? What do we do when others around us experience suffering? Paul tells us to be joyful always, to be thankful. How can joy or gratitude possibly coexist with suffering? How in the world could those? It, it, it even says it, you know, John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus says, take heart. How do I take heart? How in the world does a human being take heart when you are in a space of also experiencing suffering? 
And friends, these are not intangible questions. Just to be brutally honest with you, I'm kind of preaching from a tender space tonight um, because I don't want to turn them into a sermon illustration, but I had good friends who lost a child last week. Funerals on Friday. They dropped by our building today. I did not expect that, to see them today as I was prepping for tonight. And these questions are fresh for me. And whether they're fresh for you, some of you relate to this because you're like, you know what? That's kind of where I am. I'm in a season of walking through some really hard stuff, and so I resonate with that. And some of you are not, but you either have been or you will be. And I need you to understand tonight that even though God feels far in spaces of pain and suffering, that he entered through it on our behalf, that he can sympathize with us in those moments, And that there are promises that we have in Scripture that we take with us through that pain. And um, and again, I I was meeting with a friend last week um, as I was prepping for some of this uh, who happens to be a counselor. And I was like, man, Corey, I would love for you to lean in to, uh, to some of the things that we're talking about tonight of how faith and suffering coexist, because as a counselor, these are things practically that he's in people's worlds all the time. So, Corey, if you wouldn't mind coming up, and if you guys would welcome him, uh, I've asked him to come and share with us tonight. Oh, you can keep clapping. He was a long way away. There we go. Thanks, brother. Uh, Corey was sitting in your seat many moons ago. Uh, you told me 13 years? 13 years was my uh, yeah, first year here, 2010, when I was sitting here for the first time. Yeah, so first of all, like, I, I just want to give these guys a sense of who you are. So tell me about your past. Like, What, what took you to counseling? Because it's a, it's a bit of a windy one. It is, yeah. Yeah, originally I uh, came to ISU, like probably many of you, with the intention of becoming a teacher. Um, I was going to become a biology teacher and coach football, and that was kind of the, the plan I had in my mind, kind of loosely holding that, kind of like, that was the plan, but I was kind of open to, to, you know, what God may have for me, and um, yeah, several different kind of options, you know, open doors, closed doors that God had for me along the way. Um, I was an intern here uh, in 2014. Um, and Back before it was cool. Right, before it was cool to be an intern. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, geez. Um, and then my, my plan had been to become a chaplain in the Air Force. Um, at that point in time, I had been in the Air Force for about five years, about five years at that time, as a medic. And I wanted to transition to become a chaplain. Um, so I was going to go to Denver Seminary, get my MDiv, uh, go that route. And, you know, I was pretty set on that. I thought that was the game plan. It seemed like that was, everything was lining up. Uh, to, to make that happen. And I just, I vividly remember one day getting uh, a phone call from my recruiter who said that, uh, well, hey, you know, we'd love to have you, but you have tattoos, so we can't have you as a chaplain. And I think I came straight to the campus house and I like, told, you're like the first person I told, I was like, my world was just rocked because I was like, this makes no sense. I'm already in the Air Force currently. Um, I, was, I, was, I was pretty shook. Um, and then looking, it's kind of funny because looking back, I ended up, I did go to Denver Seminary. It just ended up being for the clinical mental health counseling program. 
Um, while I was out there, I met an Air Force recruiter who was like, hey, you ever thought about being an Air Force chaplain? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, actually I have. But uh, he told me no, because I had tattoos. And, and he's like, well, we have a waiver for that now, so you can do that. But, uh, <laughs> so they told him no, and then they changed the policy like yeah. within months. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the, yeah for close, open doors, closed doors, it's like, okay, clearly this is where God wanted me was to become a therapist. So. Yeah, so why, what took you, what took you to counseling specifically with that? Sure. I think, um, well, first of all, my own kind of background growing up, like, uh, my life was pretty turbulent growing up and seeing the positive impact that therapy had on those around me and then for myself personally was, um, was pretty eye-opening. And then just, I've always wanted to be a helper. I just didn't know how. I just wanted to know what that was going to be. And it just felt like this was a good blend of um, a good way to be there for people. And it just felt like this was, this was the route. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who, because I, w- within the Christian world, I think there's some preconceived notions about counseling. I think that's less true than it used to be, maybe like 10 years ago, speaking as the old guy in the room. But I, I still think there's a stigma around it sometimes where it's like, can't we just pray harder? I mean, like, can't we just spiritually solve these physical problems or mental or emotional problems that we have? Um, what's, as a follower of Jesus, and as somebody who has training in the counseling world, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? How do those two things work together? Yeah, I think that that's, that's something that Denver Seminary, I feel like, prepped us for really well as, you know, going through that program. I think that they talked about okay, we are holistic beings, right? We're created in the image of God. So we are not just a spiritual being. We are, God created us with, with a body. Um, so really the approach that, uh, that they, you know, trained us for it is, you know, the bio, psycho, social, spiritual. So we, we want to look at us as whole beings, not just uh, faith is, not that faith is not important or not the most important aspect of our life, but if we're going to treat, you know, certain things that are popping up in our life, let's step back and take a real, you know, large picture at that. So therapy is one avenue of healing, hmm. right? There's so many avenues of healing. There's, there's modern medicine, there's, there's prayer, uh, there is therapy, there's, there's so many different ways of healing, and, and therapy is, is one of those. So, um, yeah, I, I get, um, I, I think there's a lot of different views, right, on Okay, well, we have, how can we have Bible and psychology? How does that, aren't those opposed? Aren't those, you know, science and the Bible, aren't those opposed? And, and I think that they actually integrate, you know, perfectly well. Yeah. Within their own spheres, right? Yeah, and I, without, like, I don't want to take us down a rabbit trail, but, um, but I, I think there is this perspective. When you, when you think about God creating this earth, then the sense that, that, him creating things that we discover as medicines are a part of what he has put on this, you know, him creating spaces where it's like us understanding how to ask the right questions and uh, help people travel through understanding their own emotions and their own experiences and their own journey. It's like all of that is attached to his wisdom. So it's not, it's not like prayer or nothing. Um, prayer and all of those other things that he's given us and his wisdom really are beautiful, including medicines, including an appointment with you, you know, I mean. Yeah. And, and I think one of the most important things I try to help some people work through is like, going to therapy doesn't mean you're lacking faith. Yeah. You can go to therapy and still have complete faith in God as, as your healer, as your father, as all these things. 
I think that can be a big stumbling block. Is that yeah. So, I mean, I already mentioned it here, but like our topic tonight of suffering, which, um, I mean, I know I narrowed in on the slice of grief, but I think it's a much larger thing. But this isn't abstract for you this week. I mean, that what I talked about has a significant overlap in, in you and Hannah, your wife's reality right now. So, I mean, what are you carrying as you walk into tonight? Yeah, it was actually just kind of good that you sent me that question because it forced me to kind of take a step back and think about where I'm at with things. To be honest, I, uh, when I think about where I'm at in the grieving process, I feel like I've been stuck in anger for a long time. And um, you know, I, I've experienced a lo- enough life now to where I can kind of understand some patterns of how I grieve. And I know that next week it's probably gonna hit me like a ton of bricks and I'm just, but right now I'm just stuck in that anger and just kind of compartmentalizing some of the emotion mm. and, and that will kind of lead to kind of what we're talking about here in a little bit, but I'm, it's a windy road. There is no straight path to grief and, and, and through suffering. There is no manual that you can flip to and say, okay, well, I'm here now. So I feel like I'm kind of stuck in that anger and compartmentalizing some of the emotion a little bit. Yeah. So. Yeah, same. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like, uh, um, or maybe even a little bit of numbness. Uh, I'm, I'm good at compartmentalizing you know, where it's like I need stuff to be in its box until I can deal with it in its proper time. And uh, I don't know, I feel like I have too many boxes open right now. <laughs> um, so I don't know, as I was processing today, that's some of what I was, not that like this doesn't really need to be a therapy session in front of all of you guys, but uh, some of what I was processing today and prepping for tonight. Um, so someone comes to you. I mean, I, I don't know if he mentioned this too, but Corey also specialize, specializes, um, not all of his clients, but a number of his clients are kids, which brings in its own complexity as well, um, some of whom are forced to be, to be there by parents or others. And so, again, that, that drags in its own complexity. But, but if somebody's walking through a season of suffering, Corey, so like whatever that looks like, whether that, because I, I don't want to make any assumptions as I'm dragging these questions out, because I feel like sometimes that suffering is obvious. I mean, like, in, in, a, in grieving through a friend's child's death, there is an obvious cause that I'm struggling with that's not hard for me to identify. But there are times where we're walking through really deep emotional duress that the cause is not easily identifiable. Like, I'm, I'm experiencing, experiencing emotions of anger or of patterns in my life of maybe addiction, and I don't know why. I don't have a cause I see the effect, but I don't necessarily under, understand the cause. So you have somebody who walks into your office. Um, like, h- how do you help them express that, walk through that? Uh, how does that apply to somebody who might be sitting here who's walking through a dark or difficult season? Uh, like, I don't know, what words do you have toward that? Yeah, I think that... Um and really this can apply to anybody who's trying to walk through people with suffering is right. You have to build that relationship and, and build that foundation of trust with someone that you are the type of person that is safe to open up to. You're, uh, I, I try my best to really create a space that they, they can feel known and not judged, that, that whatever they say um, is going to be um, accepted and not evaluated. Mm. Um, that they can be their authentic self 
with me because I think that that's really the foundation for trying to get anywhere. Um, and I think that that happens in the context of all relationships is it has to be built on that, that safety and that trust that I can be emotionally vulnerable with you and you're not gonna shut me down or you're not gonna judge me or tell me to think differently. So really building from there, um, you know, I, I found it kind of interesting. We're all wired extremely differently. Some people are very emotionally fluent, right? Like I can ask someone, you know, hey, like, you know, not tell me how that makes you feel, right? That's like the classic therapy question, but like something like, like what were you experiencing mm -hmm. internally when you found that out? Or something like along those lines. And some people can just tell you right off the bat, well, I felt this and this is, and they can hit you three with different emotions, but other people you kind of have to provide them some scaffolding or give them some words to kind of put a language to it because emotions are not as easy for them to identify. So kind of helping them, you know, we call it emotional identification and processing, which is just a funny way of saying talking about your feelings. Gotcha. But, yeah, just kind of facilitating <laughs> that to help yeah. people really like identify, like, yeah, this was the emotion I was feeling. Because I think we deal with a lot of primary emotions, right? Like anger, anger is a secondary emotion. Like underneath that anger is typically a lot of embarrassment or hurt or shame or frustration or all those things. So really trying to help people identify what's under that and understand it first mm. and I, I hope my intention tonight in bringing Corey up here is not to push counseling on you <laughs> like um, like here is why you need to make a referral to a therapist uh, I, I, I guess maybe it would be good for me to say what Corey just said that 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 place of trust being a starting point is such an important piece of Christian community, like for us. I, I have students who will come and talk to us as staff people who will be like, I think I need to see a therapist. And when they begin to start unpacking stuff, it's like, actually, I think you need friends. I think you, I think you need authentic friendships where you can talk about this stuff. You, you should have permission to talk in trusting ways with the people around you. And I have people who come and it's the opposite, where they're like, I think I need to figure this stuff out with my friends. And it's like, actually, it might be good for you to have a conversation with someone who's been trained to ask um, some very specific questions that might be more helpful for you. And so again, I'm not, please don't hear that as a, as a one or the other, but I think sometimes we confuse, we can, we can play the role of trusted, authentic voices in each other's lives far more often than we do. Culturally, we are not good at this. We are not fluent in this. Um, we have stuff that, that tastes like intimacy, but isn't, it isn't quite that thing. And I think good friendships land that trust piece that you're talking about there too. So let me just ask the flip side of that, Corey. How can we mess that up? Like what, what are ways that you would be a terrible counselor or that we would be terrible friends by somebody who's walking through emotional distress, who are in a season of pain or suffering? Um, I think... There's a couple different things that I guess maybe I would warn us to protect uh, against or to warn us to not go down that path of, which can, in the first one being kind of like, I like to say like sympathy versus empathy. I think that no one likes to feel treated kind of like with kid gloves sometimes when they're going through suffering, right? Um, there's a difference between sympathizing with someone and empathizing with them. You know, we can empathize with them and kind of enter into that space and feel what they're feeling and be with them and be present. But to sympathize with them and, and kind of, you know, 
maybe un even unintentionally, but kind of like talking down to them. Like condescending, yeah. Condescending, you know, they're there, like all that kind of stuff, all the kind of cliches, things like that. Yeah. Um, so trying to enter into it rather with, uh, with empathy and kind of just being with them in the pain rather than with sympathy. Um, and yeah, like avoiding some of the cliches kind of that, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, hey brother, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Like, you know, you, you can make it through this. And there's a time and a place, there is a valid time and place for that kind of encouragement. And that's where we have to really be discerning because, you know, an ill-timed, um, well-intended maybe encouragement can kind of hurt, can hurt, can actually hurt because we're, we're not always in a place when we're suffering and going through this intense emotional pain, we're not always in a place to receive that yet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, steering clear of maybe some of the sympathy and, and maybe avoiding some of the cliches or making it about us, right? Like, like oh, you're having a hard day. Well, let me tell you about my day. Oh, my gosh. Like, I, <laughs> you know, like kind of just jumping into yeah. everything that's going on with us, right? And it's just like just being a good listener, trying to be a good listener. Yeah, yeah that's so good. Um, and I, I know that this is a super broad question, but, you know, when we're walking through emotional pain, I mean, someone's coming to you, what's the goal? Is our goal to get through it? I mean, because there's a part of me, if I'm thinking, uh, again, any form of suffering, it's like all I want is to be on the other side right now. Um, what's your view on that as a counselor? What is, what's our goal uh, in, in, dealing with this because I, I I'm gonna all my cards on the table I feel like in and I I've, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you where I fall on the spectrum but I see this spectrum all over the place where some there we have people who are like I want to blow through this I just I need to set it to the side if I can get through it it's fine I can I can put that in its box and put it away and bury it in the backyard and I'm good it's, it's done and I see people who um almost like take on the identity of this thing as a permanent, like I can't, I can't ever get past this. I'm, I will stay in this forever. So like, what does it mean? What does it mean to even walk th through this with somebody? Yeah, I think that that's a really good big, big picture question um, that my, well, when you asked that question, my mind immediately went to you know, the goal of anything in life, which is, you know, as Christians, like our goal is to become more like Christ. Our goal is to become sanctified, to continue to be the person that God has made us to be. And I think that um, while that can be hard to remember when we're going through really intense suffering, to keep that in mind, you know, is very critical. Um, and I think that if the end goal, the end goal can't just be to get rid of the pain. That can't be the end goal. And like you said, on the other side of the spectrum, the, the end goal can't just be to, to let this define us or to, to just sit in that forever. So we really have to find that healthy balance of, of, if we look at scripture, we see that suffering is promised. And we also look, there's, there's so many themes throughout scripture that point to letting God use that suffering yeah. as a refiner's fire to make us more into something the type of person that he needs us to be, that he wants us to be. So I think, yeah, big picture, the, the, you know, the goal is not to avoid the emotion or to get past the emotion, but it's to, at the end of the day, be able to look back and see that God used this suffering to, to make me more like Christ and to ultimately make me into the person that he 
wants me to be. Yeah. Um, and, and weirdly, even, even in studying the passage that we're in tonight, um, this moment in Gethsemane for Jesus, this turning point for Jesus, after he leaves this space, uh, it's different. I mean, he's praying prayers right now that are desperate of, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And, it, you know, I, I don't want to do this. There's just this tone of, I don't want to carry the weight that sits out in front of me. After he leaves this garden, um, what he endures and the strength that he has to endure it, is a, it's, he's different. He's a, after that struggle in the garden, God produces something in him that's different on the way to the cross. Um, there's a determination that, uh, all right, one last question, and that is, uh, this one's just like blank slate. Um, if you had to go back to college, Corey, uh, you're sitting in these seats at Capon, what advice do you give yourself uh, in the seat that you're in now? Yeah, uh, college, Corey. Okay. <laughs> thought about that a little bit, um, I, I, I wish that maybe, or the advice that I would give myself would be to really take a step back and kind of, um, take a step back and try to look at things through that bigger picture, and, and kind of, you know, I mentioned that, like, that biopsychosocial spiritual model earlier that I, that I discussed, and I kind of, I wish I would look back and kind of see that there's different lenses that you can, hmm. you can look through things. Everything doesn't have to be spiritual. Everything doesn't have to be, you know, just physical. Everything, just kind of see how all those things play together and have those kind of conversations with people who are, um, who are close to me, who I was in discipleship with. And, and not that I didn't do that. I think I did do that. I just think that um, maybe I would give myself the advice to drink less coffee and take more naps. I think and take care That's of good myself advice. a little bit more. Like... Anybody yeah. feel called out right now? Like, it's okay. It's all right. Yeah, like not, you don't have to power through everything. Yeah. Like you can kind of just, you don't have to be highly caffeinated 24 hours a day <laughs> to get it through college, but I felt like I did. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you guys have a unique season that sits in your life right now where, uh, and again, I, Sometimes, I don't like going to church services, which this is one, where an emotion is projected on you. And so I don't want to project suffering on you tonight. That might not be where you're at at all in this season. You might be coming in just on fire, being like, Jesus, let's go. I'm in a mountaintop right now, and these dudes are talking about suffering on the stage right now. It's not where I'm at. Um, awesome. I'm not projecting this emotion on you tonight. I am telling you that, that you won't stay on the mountaintop. There will be valleys and spaces where you feel emotionally distraught, and I want you to hear from me. The goal is not for you just to get back to a mountaintop. Jesus is just as much with you in that valley as he was on the mountaintop. Your perception has just changed. His presence is still with you. His Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's titles, by the way, is counselor. Process that one for a second. He's a comforter. Um, that's part of God's ongoing presence with you. And so um, I'm going to ask you actually to take a picture of what I'm going to throw on the screen because um, I have just some biblical promises for you. I'm going to put them all up there at the same time here. 
And I would love for you to just take a picture of those so you could come back to them later in the week because I, I, I don't have the ability to really unpack these a lot tonight. And I don't want to race through suffering to give you the biblical promises of, oh, this is how it's easier. This isn't. It isn't easy when you're walking through a medical diagnosis and you're like, there's uncertainty in this. This is difficult for me. When you're walking through the death of a family member and you're like, I don't know where to go with this. This isn't, this isn't something that's going to be solved next week. There are promises that we can hold on to in Scripture. And I've just given you three. The top one is protection. And protection is not, I'm, I'm, I want to be cautious with this and just give you this caveat, all right? Protection is not protection from pain. It is that God has put limits on that pain. So in 1 Corinthians, we're told that uh, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, and that when we are tempted, He provides a way that we can stand out, uh, that, we can, that we can stand under that protection. Um, first of all. Second of all, in John 17, Jesus prays. That's, that's a prayer right after John 16 that I made you guys repeat, that in this world you will have trouble. He prays for us as believers, and when he's praying to the Father, he says, Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I am asking that you protect them from the evil one. And so we can pray, and pray prayers of protection. God, would you protect us from this? I think the greatest promise that we have in Scripture is the second one, and that is a witness, God's presence with us, and it is all over Scripture. I just dumped three on you there, but there is this promise that He is with us, that He's close to the brokenhearted, that He binds up our wounds, that He is present. We feel like He is distant. He is not. He actually tells us He is uniquely present with us in our pain. And the third one is, and Corey already alluded to this one, but I wrote on here, don't rush this, This is not something you should speak out loud to someone else unless for sure it is the right time. God has promised that he will use our pain, both in our lives and in other people's lives. That's the Romans 8, 28 promise. And the other one here, the James 1, 3, that the testing of our faith develops perseverance in us. That's a promise that he gives too. But again, friends, I want to take you back to something that Corey said, and I want to hold your nose in it for just a second. Um, we are far too quick to want to grab onto those in, in our lives, but especially for others, of saying, well, yeah, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, yeah, but you're supposed to be joyful always right now. Well, yeah, but this person has it really worse than you do. And I, I got to tell you, that burns trust. Joe and I were a part of a small group years and years ago. It was a long time ago. And we, we, this is a group that met every week. We talked about faith, what's going on in your life, what's going on in your family. And uh, the, one of the wives asked Joe if they could get together. So the two wives met together, and she basically told Joe that, that her marriage was on the, on the brink of divorce, which was not what the tone of our small group. This is not what had been projected in our group setting. And that things had been really bad, and they've been really bad for a long time. And so she, you know, she shared all this stuff, and Joe said, I, I hate that this is the first time I, like, I feel so bad as a friend that I don't know this. Why didn't you ever bring this up in small group? And she said, that is the last place I would have brought any of this up. That is not a safe place. Ugh. What are we doing together, church? What are we doing together if the friendships that we create that we don't have the ability to have trust with each other. That's not, I'm not putting that on her. I'm putting that on us as her small group, that we had not created a space of trust where she could 
feel safe sharing that. How much I want that for you. How much I wish that I had done that, that I had made myself more vulnerable when I was a college student in your seat. I had people around me who loved Jesus and I gave them a certain amount of vulnerability and no more. I was careful with how I chose to, uh, to allow vulnerability in my life. I wish I'd trusted more and protected less in that season. Be safe spaces for each other. The Lord is with you in your suffering, and you aren't as alone in it as you think you are. And you have a high priest who can both sympathize and empathize with what you've walked through because he endured it. Every way that you are tempted, Jesus has been tempted, physically, emotionally, mentally. He has walked the same path you walk. And I want you to remember that when you're not on the mountaintop. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. Jesus, I pray uh, specifically for those who are walking through this kind of season that we're talking about right now, in a season of anguish or suffering or difficulty. Lord, would you just reveal how close you really are? I pray for a sense of peace even in the chaos. I pray for our friends. Our cl- <laughs> pray for our friends struggling through the loss of a, of a child. Um, that you would bring comfort, Holy Spirit. I don't understand. So God, would you help me even in the midst of not understanding that loss to trust you and your presence in it. Um, Thank you that between those two trees of perfection, Jesus was a garden that you did not uh, ignore, that you walked straight to the heart of and that you endured on our behalf. So we love you, Christ. Thankful that you're with us. Holy Spirit, comfort. In your name we pray. Amen.